From LARB HQ in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, this is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I am Colin Marshall. I recently heard about our guest today, Leslie Coburn, that she's been in more war zones, someone said, than we've been in bars. And, and indeed, she has experienced and examined such trouble spots as Cambodia, Haiti, Laos, Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Somalia. That That's just part of the list. He's also, of course, experienced other trouble spots and examined, such as the, how do I put it, an America within, an America in the grip of financial crisis. Her new book is not reportage. It's it's fiction. It's a novel. It's called Baghdad Solitaire. Leslie, is every war zone interesting to you in the same way, or is every war zone interesting to you in its own way? Both. Both. Um, every war zone is very different. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the second you enter a war zone, you feel like the life you lead at home was possibly a dream. Really? And you're back into this reality where you have to be super alert. Um, you're constantly feeling fear. You're uncertain of things. You just become, your survival instincts come out. Mm. And it really is a very different environment where you're constantly listening for the sound of different ordinance. Uh, you have to deal with... Um, an issue which I look at in Baghdad Solitaire, which is deception at every level. Um, that's always, I think Sun Tzu even mentioned that, that's always an important element of war. We should say this. I mean, a war zone is not just a place where a war is going on. I mean, it's, it's a place where, more importantly, the, the rules have gone away, the rules one expects back at home. That's exactly right. Um, there are no rules. I mean, in Baghdad Solitaire, you... I'm looking at Baghdad six months after the invasion in 2003. Um, that's where the characters live at that point, and there is no law and order. There is no structure. Uh, it's it's the kind of thing that an author I admire very much, Joseph Conrad, was always looking at what happens when you strip away the veneer of civilization, when the stoplights don't work, when the policeman isn't there when um, gangs are roaming the city, when you could be shot, you could be raped, you know, those, those dangers are ever-present. And in the midst of that, you have ordinary people at every level um, who are trying to survive in an extraordinary, difficult, and extremely dangerous situation. Tell me what about Baghdad at that time, or even now, you found was better to capture with fiction than straight reporting. What about that place, that time, makes fiction the tool to use? Well, I think you could apply, you know, those tools in practically any war I've Mm. been in. But I think that I was trying to, you know, I had done a lot of coverage in Baghdad. I'd done a couple of 60-minute stories. I'd covered Iraq for Vanity Fair as a correspondent for Frontline, you know, over the years. So I'd experienced it under... Saddam, and then I'd experienced it through both Gulf Wars. Mm. It was simply at that time when I'd already, I'd already tackled it through so many journalistic outlets, and I thought, you really can't, um, you really can't deal with this situation except in fiction. And the reason is, I think that um, 
you know, once when an audience is watching a 60 minute story or is reading Vanity Fair, they're reading something that's already digested by the journalist. Mm. The journalist has found the people, has struggled, has gotten the interview, has done all those things. The, the, you know, the readers are not, um, you're not bringing them along mm. in a sense. You're just presenting. Mm. And what fiction allows you to do is the readers enter this situation, this kind of, as in Baghdad Solitaire, this kind of wilderness of mirrors. Mm. And they follow along and they discover what they know and what they don't know. They feel the fear. They feel um, that, uh, you know, they're, this is a, uh, Baghdad Solitaire is a political thriller. Mm. So I follow a um, a woman who is a a surgeon. She's a trauma surgeon. She comes to the country. She's had a lot of experience in Afghanistan. It's her first time in Iraq. And she comes to the country because one of her closest friends uh, is missing mm. and presumed kidnapped. So that's why she enters this place. And you, so you, you get to travel around with her and face what she faces and see what she sees. Reading journalism, then, you know the journalist had the experience. You're reading the fruit of that experience. Reading fiction, you, the reader, are more like having the experience. But here in Baghdad Solitaire, you're able to give then, you're able to put yourself back in the mind of somebody who has never seen Baghdad before? Yes. Mm. Tell, tell me about Baghdad the very first time you saw it, which is, of course, before the well, before the current war. What were your initial impressions the very first time you were there? Well, the first time I went to Baghdad was in 1991. Mm -hmm. I spent the summer there. I was with my husband. Together, we produced and directed a frontline called The War We Left Behind. At that point, I'd covered the first Gulf War, both in Saudi Arabia and in Israel. Um, coming to Baghdad to see the effects of the war was uh, a... a extraordinary experience. Remember, it had been uh, the targeteers, the Pentagon targeteers had, had chosen um, these, uh, what they called nodes, uh, particular things like power plants and sewage plants and all the things that kind of kept the society moving along. And so I was able to see all of that falling apart, to mm -hmm. see a society falling apart. At that point, I interviewed, for example, pediatricians in Iraq and they said that the biggest problem for children before the first Gulf War was obesity. Mm. So it was a little bit like the United States. Mm. And after things started falling apart, uh, once sanctions were in place, I saw, um, you know, hospital wards full of kids with cholera. I saw middle class Iraqi women who had once been fashionably dressed um, at auction houses selling uh their furniture, mm -hmm. their jewelry, their books. So it was, and I witnessed that, you know, the currency was going crazy. So it was a period of, of um, disintegration. Mm. So to come back later, I, then I came back at various times, but coming back again uh, after the occupation in the second Gulf War was I was able to compare the two to see. But, the, you know, the first time, Although Saddam uh, had the place in a very tight grip, it was really terrifying mm -hmm. for, for example, 
some of the people that we wanted to speak to, it was terrifying for them to speak to us because mm. they knew that the consequences could be that they could be thrown into Abu Ghraib mm. and, uh, and just disappeared. But there was still at that time a, uh, a very interesting uh, and very old society in Baghdad, um, kind of the heart of the civilization, archaeologists and writers and artists um, who were uh, really the heart of the place and who survived despite the Saddam regime. And those people, when I went back again after the occupation, that world was seriously falling apart and now mm. it's completely um, destroyed. Mm. So some of the themes in Baghdad Solitary you see in the midst of this, you have uh, Lee McGinnis, this trauma surgeon who's searching for her friend, Martin Kerrigan, who's disappeared. One of the people she goes to see along the way is an Iraqi artist who she knows about, an artist who's had shows in New York, quite a big artist who's determined to stay in Baghdad. She finds this woman, Layla, in her oasis in the middle of Baghdad. It's a beautiful garden of palms, and she's got her extraordinary pots and houses full of books. And it's the sort of the heart of the civilization that mm. cannot withstand the violence and the pressure of this war. Mm. And what does it take to be someone like Layla, who, who, is a, who is a holdout, who wants to stay in Baghdad, which, as you described, is not just a city crippled, but now one destroyed? She's growing her own vegetables at home. She's... Uh, doing deals at the market to get things. Mm. She's learned how to survive. Uh, and for a while, she does rather well. But in the end, it's it's increasingly difficult. And it, uh, well, I shouldn't give it away, but I, I think that the um, it's very, very hard when you put people in those circumstances to, um, to, to survive. And I, I think that she... But she is this great force for life, and she's part of the the great humanity that's that's fighting against this humanity that comes whenever you have such a huge conflict. Now, is the the Baghdad you saw most recently just unrecognizable compared to the one you first saw? No, I don't think so. It's not unrecognizable mm. physically. Although um, parts of Baghdad, of course, were bombed, other parts got a lot shabbier. Mm. But um, what's unrecognizable, I think, is, uh, is the society mm. in Baghdad. A lot of it. There were, at the end of the uh, Second Gulf War, you had uh, some five million refugees, mm. internal and external. That means hundreds of thousands of people moving across the border to Jordan, Others moving across the border to Syria, where, of course, you know, now they face another conflict. Yes. Uh, very difficult for those refugees. But I think that, uh, so it's the society that's changed so dramatically. You mentioned Joseph Conrad. When did your interest begin in that thin line between, on one side, we have society and civilization, on, on the other side, we don't have either of those things. So when did you start looking at that line? Well, uh, even while I was a student at Yale, I was in, you know, I came out of the Yale English department. I was also very interested in anthropology. Mm -hmm. When I was a student, 
I spent some time, I left college for a while and I went to Africa and lived in a village, mm. a really remote village up in the hills in central Kenya, a place where a lot of people had never seen a white person before. And I was taken in, given a clan. I was under the auspices of uh, a wonderful group called the Flying Doctors who had an African ground team looking at medical problems. So I had this opportunity, even as a college student, to see a world that was just utterly different, where mm. people hadn't read a book, some people had never looked in a mirror, but at the same time, an extremely rich world, uh, you know, the, their belief system, their oral traditions, everything. I was completely intrigued. Mm. And I was reading Conrad at that time. You know, I was reading Heart of Darkness. I was reading Lord Jim. I was reading Nostromo. I was reading all of this work and um, was so fascinated by it, as, as also I was reading Graham Greene, that when I first became a journalist, when I first uh, joined NBC News in London as, as the most junior person there, um, I, my fascination really was with small wars, mm -hmm. wars which were proxy wars at that time. The Cold War was going on, mm -hmm. and there were proxy wars going on all over Africa um, and all over the world. And I wanted to, um, I think, become a journalist because I wanted to go back to Africa. Oh. And um, so I think that my, in a way, my literary interests drove um, drove my journalistic interests. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a way, the the kind of the work I've been doing for thirty years as a journalist was all material for this fiction mm -hmm. that comes out in Baghdad Solitaire. I'm glad you mentioned Graham Greene because I think any reader of Baghdad Solitaire will, if they have read Graham Greene before, they will think, "Oh, okay, this is." This is maybe the continuation of, of, of things that, that will have fascinated them reading Green. A theme like, a theme like you know, places, places is too small a word, regions like the Middle East and Africa and, and how they have seemed to, they've seemed to exude opportunity to countries like America, but it's never, it's opportunity that is always frustrated. And this is a theme Gra uh, Graham Green worked with. Tell me, what what did, what did he know about about American and other Western intervention in places too foreign for it to handle? I'm a tremendous fan of Graham Greene, mm. and that came about because I found myself often in the same places where Greene was. He wrote one of his earliest. I mean, his earliest book was Journey Without Maps mm. in Liberia. That was one of my first assignments, mm. to go to Liberia. I was looking at flags of convenience. I was looking at the America Liberians. I saw tremendous um, – I, I saw you know, that society falling apart as well mm. and really had a tremendous – I could see by being there what he'd done with that book. Likewise, The Comedians, which is one of his truly great books about Haiti um, – what Graham Greene saw, I was able to see later as I covered it as a journalist, uh, saw the, the fall of the Duvaliers, mm -hmm. the great uh, dictators of Haiti. And I was in a lot of the same places as Greene. I, I knew the people who he based some of his characters on. Mm -hmm. uh, Petit Pierre was a friend of mine called Aubelin Jolicoeur. And I 
stayed always in Chambre 11 at the Olafsen, which was the hotel that he used as the Trianon. In fact, when he placed the body in the bottom of the pool, that was my view as I woke up in the morning. <laughs> so I think I really had a strong sense of what Green was trying to get at. And, and you know, if someone thought Baghdad Solitaire was a continuation of that, I would be extremely flattered. I think that he saw um, the flaws of believing that you can control these situations. Mm. I think that the characters, he creates very complex, wonderful characters, like the quiet American, for example. There is someone who believes he's doing the right thing in Vietnam. Uh, turns out that he's, uh, it, he's not doing the right <laughs> thing at all. It's a, it's a force for um, destruction and terror. And I think Green was able to step back um, away from the sort of uh, being too attached to one side mm. and and really try and examine characters um, in a very interesting and complex way. I've tried to do that in Baghdad Solitaire. Mm. There are various, you know, it's set in Iraq. You've got various Western characters. You have the protagonist, um, Lee McGinnis, the doctor, you have Duncan Hope, who's an English journalist, who she teams up with at one point to help her get around. Um, Martin Kerrigan is an American aid worker. These are characters you would find in Green as well, because those are the characters who inhabit those places. And the Iraqis in Baghdad Solitaire are very, it's a very complex range of people. Mm. You have, uh, um, you know, you have a very kind of, uh, one who is a very sleazy person who used to, who's a black marketeer, but who's very useful to Lee and helps her. Uh, there's someone who is a very principled nuclear physicist who'd been in Abu Ghraib for a decade in solitary confinement. You have uh, the beautiful Layla, the artist who's trying to, to, um, shore up the little bit of civilization that's left in this um, wrecked society. So there are a number of um, permutations, uh, you know, you try to reach and, and then you put all these people together and see how they interact. Mm. Now, you have, of course, written a different novel than Graham Greene would have written about modern Iraq. But did, was that on your mind ever? What what he would have said, or what he, indeed Conrad would have said about uh, Iraq these days? They would have all said you. Th you three would all say different things, I think. But did you did you wonder? Did you speculate about that? I don't think so. Not mm. so specifically. Mm. Um, I think that those kinds of writers, um, along with, you know, this is a political thriller. So there are other writers who. Um, who I think about in terms of the brilliance of capturing something like Eric Ambler and State of Siege or Journey into Fear or uh, Martha Gellhorn and her Collier's work in, in Spain uh, or her work in World War II. You know, you think of how they captured things and uh, it just, it really pushes you to try harder and harder and harder to convey the truth. What have you learned to look for when a dictator falls? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, who's taking advantage of it? Mm. And that uh, means a lot of things. In the case of Iraq, the fall of Saddam uh, opened up a lot of old wounds. There were a lot of groups who'd been sort of tamp 
down, kept mm. under control. Not just Sunni and Shia, what we understand now, but groups inside the Shia community, groups mm. inside the Sunni community. So looking at, uh, it, it's kind of like wolves tearing apart a carcass. I, mm. I, that's an image that comes up in Baghdad Solitaire, and I think it's really true. On the uh, the side of the United States, there was a lot of confusion, complication. There was uh, competition among people. You had uh, a situation where literally billions of dollars in cash were coming into this country in shrink-wrapped $100 bills, $50 bills on C-130s. That cash, much of which is still uh, missing, uh, it did a lot of things. It brought out this tremendous greed among various people, not just contractors coming in, various types of Iraqi black marketeers, even in the military. You know, um, I have read all of those, uh, over the years, all those inspector general reports mm. at the Pentagon, and they looked at all of this. And the big one they did at the end of the war, it's interesting. They, you know, we talk about a free fire zone. They called Iraq a free fraud zone. Free fraud zone, oh my. And there were specific cases, you know, in Baghdad Solitaire, I deal with that kind of corruption mm. at various levels. And in in real life, there were extraordinary cases. There was one where... um the CPA, the Coalition Provisional Authority, which was the first U.S. Uh, uh, government, so to speak, in the Green Zone, they had uh, an office, a branch office. And in that branch office, the person who was responsible for dispensing millions and millions of dollars was in fact a convicted felon. Mm. And this person was able to convince other people including military personnel in that office, to, um, to be on the take. Mm. And he even stole a couple million dollars out of a safe in the green zone. So there was that kind of undercurrent going on because of a very um, extremely loose situation mm. where there was just so much money flying around. You hear from non-journalists, people who are just referencing the situation in Iraq, that the, the same story told, like that, that it became quickly too complicated, too confusing, too disorderly for things to run there as, as any American would have expected. What, what's important to add to that simple story? Well, I try to tackle that in a way in Baghdad Solitaire. You can see how often history depends on how individuals act. Mm -hmm. So I try to show, I've created some characters, you know, there is a character, for example, who's in the green zone, who is corrupt. He's a U.S. official. He is taking money. He has his own agenda. Um, of course, there are many others who weren't doing that. But you can see um, uh, what, you know, how these things happen. He gets involved with someone else who's, who's uh, you know, they have their own ideas of how, I'm not going to, I won't give away the, the plot of this political thriller, but um, I think that uh, I just try to, um, to show what everyone on the ground knew. Um, there were things happening there that 
that really didn't get pointed up in the press. Mm. The Iraqis on the ground who were very, the ones who hated Saddam and were very excited about the U.S. coming in, many of them were disappointed. Mm. Um, I think there were people who felt there were promises not kept. And that all comes from situations where uh, maybe there would be money set aside for for really important things and the money would get stolen. Nothing would get done. Mm. The building would fall apart and they would say, how is this better? Mm. So I think there were, there, it isn't a simple story. There were a lot of complications. Of course, you can say when you have this very dramatic situation of war and things falling apart, there's a resistance that's, that's in the shadows all the time. They're blowing things up that, um, you know, it's complicated, but I, I think that in the novel, I try to bring out some of the things that, that we didn't really hear about quite so much. And those, some of those broken promises of reconstruction mm. are in there. There is that quiet American idea that America thinks it can go in and fix other older societies. That itself also seems a bit too simple that America is enslaved to a naive notion. I mean, how, how true or false do you think that idea is? Oh, I think it's completely false. Ah. Uh, in my experience of UN, U.S. foreign policy, this naivete is non-existent. Mm. And um, really, in any situation like this, you have American officials, American intelligence operatives and people on the ground who know a huge amount about what's going on, who know the entire bios of everyone in the resistance. So uh, I would say that I've never bought the notion of naivete. In in Baghdad Solitary, you have some Americans who, um, I, I don't want to give away the plot, but you have Americans who are uh, really trying to tackle this situation mm. and who, in fact, are fighting the forces of of uh, corruption and cover up, and mm. in the end, in in certain small ways, they prevail. Those people who uh, are who you will find in any one of these situations are very knowledgeable. Mm. So I think that uh, the problem you get is you might have someone in the embassy in Baghdad or the embassy in Sana'a in Yemen who knows more about this country than anyone else alive. Mm. The question is, are they being listened to? Ah. Is, the, is the information getting where it needs to go? It seems like a central question. Exactly. And with these huge bureaucracies, first their information has to get up through the State Department. Then hopefully it will make its way over to the National Security Council or uh, at some meeting where you have the Pentagon involved as well. And often it doesn't get there. Mm. You know, before the... Um, the um, second Gulf War before the last, the last, uh, before U.S. forces went into Baghdad, there were people in the region at various embassies who were cautioning uh, us and everyone else for all the right reasons. Mm. But they really, um, you know, in the deafening thunder of desire to go to war, they just were ignored. Mm. Now, looking at even even before this Iraq war, even before Baghdad solitary, looking at your work, you know, you see so much, so much coverage of instances of American intervention. Now, how long has what happens when America intervenes somewhere overtly or covertly fascinated you? 
I think ever since uh, my early days covering things, I um, after I was at Yale, I went to SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, which is a place in London, University of London, full of people from third world countries. And uh, there I was fascinated. I studied West African colonial history and was just interested in the colonial phenomenon, first the British, and of course, although the U.S., says we never have colonies. The U.S. does indeed have a backyard in South America. I covered, you know, the Central American War. Um, that was the first war I covered, really covered, aside from uh, looking at some of those conflicts in Africa mm-hmm. uh, from afar. But um, I think that it's been, it's fascinated me for a very long time. Mm. What's, what's something Central America taught you? quick, something that it taught you early. Central America, of course, being able to look at it now, years after the fact, what I learned at the time during that war and in the Reagan administration, I learned, I saw how a covert operation works. Mm -hmm. I was able to really dig deeply into that situation. And in fact, had, I did a story for CBS years ago called The Dirty War, where some of the people who were who were highly placed in the Contra operation um, came forward and talked mm. in the film about because they were having problems with how that war was being run. Um, I saw the complications of any situation like that, where you you think whenever you try to look at something in a very simplistic way, you'll find you're wrong. Mm. It's not that simple, and Nicaragua is very complicated. Look now, you have. Um, people who were Sandinistas, the Ortegas, they are now, in fact, very close to the church. Um, and that would have been bizarre at the time because they were close to the liberation theologists at the time. They were not close to the, uh, to the church, um, you know, the conventional, uh, the traditional church, uh, which was much more conservative. So people, t- alliances change. Mm-hmm. And I, that was a, it's, it's, I saw that at the time, and it's a good lesson to learn, and it's been very useful in places like uh, Iraq and places like Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, um, I covered that war through many generations of leadership. I was, I was uh, first in Peshawar in 1985 during the Russian war. I was in Afghanistan in 1993, 1996, 1998, you know, and into, uh, into after the U.S. went in, I, I was there as late as 2005. Mm. So every time you go, it's like reshuffling the cards. Mm. It's a different combination of people running things. You see old faces, but they have new positions. Mm. So it, it, it gives you a certain humility about making pronouncements about a situation. You learn that things change. And I hope that some of that uncertainty comes out in Baghdad Solitaire in looking at at Iraq. Things change. You're not sure. Is that person a um, a worthy aid worker or is that person a spy mm. or is that person uh, training, you know, forces for, for the Mujahideen? Who is that person? Mm. Those questions come up in the novel a lot. There are questions that will complicate anybody's experience in a place like that, but they'll especially complicate a journalist's experience, will they not? If, you, if you're if you in a hall of mirrors, getting a fact is going to be a struggle sometimes, right? 
Yes, mm. that's right. It always is. Mm. So you make choices about who you feel you can trust. Um, and you rely on uh, really good recommendations. And also by being able to, if someone says such and such is true, you're going to have to try and track it down yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, was there uh, an attack in a certain place? Okay, can you see any of the, are any of the bomb casings still there? Yeah. Is there a serial number? You're really trying to find things. You're trying to get a hold of documents. Um, this issue of, of trying to find evidence comes out in Baghdad Solitaire. There's a point where Lee McGinnis thinks that Martin is innocent, but she's being told that he's in fact guilty of treason um, and is faced with documents and has to try and find people who can help her decipher these documents to try and figure out the truth. Is it harder to know what the facts are in Iraq today than in other times and places, countries where the rules have evaporated, as we say? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think Iraq is a, is a wonderful example of it. Um, I think the situation now is, you know, it's very worrying. You have all the signs still of, of uh, the problems of the civil war. Mm -hmm. You have a government that uh, some people have no faith in whatsoever, although there are a few people in that government who I've known for years who are really impressive people, not just as survivors, but but uh, are very good people. So what will happen there? Again, so much of history depends on individuals. There's this sense I'm sure a reader will get, but it's one you've alluded to that, you know, in a place like this, there are, as you mentioned, there are the good people, there are the, there are the effective people, but the question, as you've raised before, who's going to get listened to? You know, it's what, what comes to bear on the question of who's going to get listened to, who's going to be able to do what they can, who's going to, who's going to have their ability realized, if you know what I mean. I do. I think that um, again, not wanting to give away the plot, but sure. I think at Baghdad Solitary, you have a situation where there's someone who is a very good person who is trying to get the truth out um, and who's really in danger of being framed and being executed. Mm -hmm. So is he going to get that information out before that happens and before his reputation is... Uh, is destroyed in the meantime, which is very easy to do. Mm -hmm. uh, evidence planted, things um, distorted. So is is he going to be able to to do it? And it really depends on, as in any of these situations, it depends on the energy of that person. Mm -hmm. What alliance does his, does he have? Does he really have people in high places who? are watching out for him at all, or is he on his own? Now, at the top of the interview, I mentioned your documentary on the financial crisis, American Casino. Tell me what it was like for you to not look at America's troubles internationally, but the troubles that go on within America itself. That was a very interesting experience. American Casino was something, uh, my husband, Andrew Coburn, and I did that together. And this, we started working on that nine months before the crash. Mm. It was January of 2008. We'd seen this rumbling in the market. We'd seen evidence of problems. Uh, and there were starting to be, you know, auctions on the courthouse steps and foreclosures. So both of us dropped everything to because we thought, and it was a gamble, really, we thought, you know, this, this could be as serious as 1929. Mm. 
And of course, as journalists, you look at that and you just really, you just want to be there in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. And we started uh, filming American Casino. And of course, uh, our hunch was right. And the people who we had relied on who said, this is very unstable, they were right. Mm -hmm. So it was as dramatic as covering a war, really. I thought, you know, we shot this in, uh, we shot American Casino in, on the one hand in Baltimore, then we came out to California, Stockton, that area. These areas were ravaged by the financial crisis. They were ravaged in the way that I think about um, neighborhoods of Baghdad being ravaged when mm. people have no more money, when they're having to sell their belongings, when they're not sure about whether they're going to lose their house. It's different. You're worried about whether some militia might come along and take your house. But in this case, you're worried whether the bank is going to take your house. Right. It was so dramatic and continues to be dramatic that switching from covering wars and foreign affairs to um, this domestic crisis seemed obvious. What were the important questions to your mind to ask about what was going on at that time in America? How did you follow the line from Main Street to Wall Street? Hmm. And to really understand it, how did you take that person who was losing their house in an auction on that day, how did you follow their paperwork through to an instrument held by Goldman Sachs, hmm. Um, that had been done under at the time when the Secretary of the Treasury had been running Goldman Sachs. How did you do that and really understand each step along the way and allow other people through the film American Casino to understand it too? Mm. And that was the great um, challenge. And I felt that there eventually would get a lot of coverage but would those connections be clearly made? And I think, I think we were able to do that. I was really pleased with that. A few years now after American Casino, I mean, would you consider this to be an aftermath period of the financial crisis? I guess that's how I always hear it described. But have, have, the, have the questions changed about you know, what is financially going on in the States? Well, I think I, I try to keep up with some of the same issues we were looking at. Mm. Foreclosures, for example. There was a period when foreclosures slowed down in certain areas. Mm. But in Baltimore, for example, one of the places we were looking at in American Casino, I see that as of July, foreclosures have tripled mm. in the past year. So things that were kept in abeyance by either city officials, state officials, um, have, have really come back and heated up again. And I, th I think you're seeing that in different areas. Of course, it's quite complicated. You have parts of California that are bouncing back. Right. So this is something, because I've been deeply involved in Baghdad Solitaire, I haven't been going around those neighborhoods in California right. seeing what is happening here. And mm. that's, um, it would be great for someone else to take that on now. Mm. And of course, aside from the financial crisis, we've, we've mentioned the, We've mentioned the foreign troubles the states has, as the, 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 that America has as well, and it's hard not to get the impression whenever you read a wide swath of news about America that America is in deep trouble. But as as you mentioned, pockets certainly are visibly in deep trouble. But America as a whole seems there's an eerie. It seems like there's a resilience that seems a little eerie to me. Do you know what I mean? It seems like America should. You read the news; it feels like America should be it should feel like a worse place to be in than it does. Does that make sense? It does, though. I think that that resilience is um, 
is the greatest thing going. Right. That's true. No, I'm not saying it's bad at all. It is. It feels like a little bit too, it's too quiet. I think that's true. I think there are, if you, if you're talking to people, to betting people on wall street, Mm. you have some who are always saying, Oh, don't believe what you see. This is, you know, things aren't as good as they are. And other people are saying, no, we're genuinely coming out of this. I do think that that quality of resilience is, as I say, the best thing going in this country. I, I think it's what fuels um, uh, fuels democracy and fuels the questioning people have mm. about what goes on. Uh, I think that in Baghdad Solitaire, I try to put that resilience into my characters yeah. so that they can cope with these extremely difficult and dangerous situations they run into in Baghdad. And that's what I was indeed going to ask. You know, American resilience and Iraqi resilience, getting those on the page in Baghdad Solitaire, how did you realize that they differ? Or maybe it was more important to know what those two types of resilience had in common. But what, how were you, how were they compared in your mind? The Iraqis are just like we are. Mm. They just happen to speak a different language and they're in different circumstances. When you have people who experienced a pretty brutal dictatorship and experienced years of sanctions and then experience another war, that's pretty rough. So the Americans in the book have not had all that experience. They have, uh, they have experienced other situations like Afghanistan. They've experienced terrible things. But I think the Iraqis are very worn down. And so when you do see the resilience, like in the character of Layla um, in Baghdad Solitaire, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's mm-hmm. something that always is astonishing when you go into a war zone and you, you know, you go into the worst refugee camp and you meet someone who's an optimist mm-hmm. and it just makes you, um, it's, it, you really, it blows you away. Do you sense that it's much different as far as the information you can collect, the knowledge, the knowledge you can disseminate the, uh, the way, the way you can do journalism when you first started going to war zones and now, or is it the same? Is it the same project it always was? I mean, you hear so much about changes in how journalism is done. I don't know how much of that has reached just the basic on the ground level. Well, I think there are a couple of problems. One is that uh, journalists are really more and more increasingly being targeted. Mm. And there was a period, you know, when you felt well, I'm a journalist and that gives me some protection. I think you feel that less and less these days. I think people feel that less. And so therefore, it's a, uh, it can be very, very treacherous. In fact, in many ways, you identify more with the people who are having to um, go through all of this in their countries mm. because you are equally vulnerable. I think another thing that's changed is that um, because the media has changed, you have citizen journalists, which I think is a good idea, but I think you have, because you ha- now have so much that's posted on YouTube, mm-hmm. for example, you see this in Syria. And the question is, is that true or is that not true? Mm. Is that faked or is that real? And you really have to try and decipher that. There is a lot of uh, information warfare going on. The internet is used by governments to try and push one point or another. So you have so 
journalists covering things have to be very cautious about that. So one, personally, they're more in danger. Two, you have to really try and sort out, is that piece of footage real? Uh, all these things are, are really complicate the work. And the other thing is that uh, news outlets really have less and less resources to send people out to these war zones for long periods of time. Mm. I was very lucky in many ways uh, for many projects to be able to go for weeks and weeks, weeks and weeks of research and then weeks and weeks of filming or of writing, and that happens less and less. Mm. So the kinds of information you're able to gather in those situations, you can do that less, and that's, it makes it harder on the journalists. And does it push some amount of a burden onto the consumer of journalism as well? That they have to do they have to do more work these days to sort things out? Do you think? Well, that's very difficult to ask the person watching a YouTube, sitting at home to figure out is this real? Yes. It's really hard because yes. there's certain things you you really have to look at and you have to figure who could have shot that, who did it, where did it come from. Um, what was it shot with? What you know, all those sorts of questions. Um, what kind of bomb casing is that? Those are the things that journalists who cover these conflicts they learn that that's part of the trade. And it's hard to ask someone at home. Everyone always needs interpreters. Mm. Indeed, no one's. It's. It's. I was about to say no one's asking them to do it. I, I. I wonder if it's just a burden that has sort of fallen upon them. Do you know what I mean? I. No one. I don't think would say the list. The the listener, the reader, the watch. The 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 watcher needs to sort this out for themselves. But it's kind of. It's just been kind of thrust upon them recently, hasn't it? I don't think it's changed so dramatically recently, but uh, I do think those. You know the complications are there, mm. and I think that that's why I'm dealing with uh, one of the themes in Baghdad Solitaire is yes. deception. Yes, indeed. What exactly is someone trying to make you believe mm. as you're walking through this wilderness of mi mirrors, trying to find someone in the middle of a war zone uh, who's been called a traitor? Mm. Now, what, what is somebody trying to make me believe? That's a question that I would imagine from day one, you have had to constantly ask yourself while doing your work. And it's never a question you can stop. It's never a question that can be off your mind, right? That's right. Hmm. That's absolutely right, because everyone has an agenda. Hmm. So what you try to do is um, is just really talk to as many people as possible, hmm. get the best recommendations as possible, and also develop long-term relationships with people. That's been one great thing in my career, which was I was able to go back again and again and again to certain conflicts hmm. in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Colombia, so that you have some sense of what was going on before and therefore have something to compare it to. Mm. Now, was Baghdad Solitaire the first time you had put pen to paper fictionally? I mean, had you, had you ever used fiction in, in any way before this, even, even for whether published or not? The only time I've ever used fiction before was um, I wrote a treatment for um, a feature film, mm. which was eventually produced by Steven Spielberg. I co-produced it was called The Peacemaker. So that was a very similar thing. Mm. Uh, I had been working on a, on a story in Russia on nuclear materials at a time when Russia had fallen apart mm -hmm. and when it was possible to 
go places and do things that one had never been able to do before and talk to military people and go to nuclear sites. So that was a, a very interesting time. And um, so writing a treatment, it was a creation of a story. And that just happened to be made into a movie. So that's where I've used it in the past. This is um, was far more challenging. Baghdad Solitaire took six years to write. Mm. Some of that, of course, I was do- I was working at the same time. But it took a long time to make the switch from journalism to non to from journalism to fiction. And uh, now I don't. I really don't want to go back. I want to keep. <laughs> I want to keep writing fiction because having gathered all that material over 30 years, there are very specific things that I want to turn into fiction. Hmm. What sort of, what, what, what happened in the writing of it that made you think, Oh, I, I've got to, I should stay with fiction for a while. What, what did you realize you could do? And we, we touched on this a bit earlier, but what, what was particularly satisfying about writing this book for you in a way that was different from journalism straight up? The most exciting thing is creating characters who people like enough so that they become very emotionally involved mm. in the story. That's so different, and it is very satisfying. And people who've read Baghdad Solitaire a- attach themselves to different characters. They uh, they really feel for the plight of Layla. They identify with Lee. They um, get involved in a way that that's very hard, even with the best journalism. It's Mm. hard to get involved. Mm. You can inform yourself, you can feel like you're informed, but to really feel emotionally involved is something you can do with fiction. And I, I really find that very exciting. And as I understand it, getting emotionally involved is something that maybe it's, it's said you're not, you shouldn't allow yourself to do in journalism. It might, it might harm the way you see things. Uh, That's true. And Mm. you try not to be emotionally involved and you, even if you do get emotionally involved, you know that you have to touch um, all sorts of bases in order mm-hmm. to give a picture that that people. You want to, you really want in journalism. You really want to, to a certain extent, you want to dig for the facts, but also you want to introduce your readers or your viewers to people and let them make up their own mind. Mm-hmm. In fiction, you are. Again, people make up their own mind, but they find certain universal elements. I mean, people have talked about Baghdad Solitaire they, in the way of you have this very in, inhumane situation, a terrible war, mm. destruction, um, and you find in the midst of that, at every level, the humanity there. Mm. There is a sense in which in a book like Baghdad Solitaire, you, you're, you're putting your characters to the test right away, just given the circumstances they're in, they're thrown right into it's people say that being in not, not just a war zone, but any, any place, any place where, as we say, the rules have lifted, uh, it does reveal who you are to yourself. These characters, they get it. They get that quickly in your book. Tell me a little bit about the challenge of that, because I'm trying to explain what I mean a little bit better, but in with a fictional character, you know, you have, you have a character before they're tested and you have a character when they're tested, if you know what I mean. And it seems like in Baghdad Solitaire, how you, the, how could they not 
start getting tested right away. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, when the protagonist enters the country, she's traveling in a convoy from mm. Jordan. That's a very scary road. It was scary at the mm. time. And in fact, um, their convoy gets attacked. So right away, people respond to a very violent situation. I'm fascinated by what happens to people um, when you put them into those situations in war. Mm -hmm. The people that you think are the strongest, sometimes are the weakest, mm -hmm. the people you think are completely hopeless and, and weakest are in fact the people you really can rely on. Mm -hmm. And this study of character, it's a little bit like Joseph Conrad in Lord Jim. It's what happens to you when you're on the edge like that, when you're on the brink. So I, I do test the characters and uh, I think it becomes very interesting. I think the protagonist in many ways thinks she's going to search for one thing, a person uh, to find this person. And in the end, what she finds is herself. Do you personally learn different things about yourself today when you're in a dangerous situation than you did when you first found yourself in dangerous situations, covering them, experiencing them? I've learned not to be complacent, mm. to feel that, oh, of course I know what I'm doing here. I That's see. a terrible mistake. Mm. Because in each situation, and again, even if you're going back to a place you've already been, mm. when you go the next time, it could be a different, a, a different regime. It could yeah. be a different set of situations. So what you learn is you have to stay on top of things all the time. If you believe that, of course, I can cope with this because I'm so experienced, you're in trouble. <laughs> it's, it's a statement that is its own negation in a sense. I got this. and That means you don't, ha you don't got this? Exactly. Uh -huh, I see. Wait, is it possible to, to really internalize the idea that, you know, I'm, maybe I don't, maybe I'm not ready for this, but I will ready myself by throwing myself into it. Do you know what I mean? Can you, can you really believe that? Can you really say, well, I'm not, this is maybe not something I'm prepared for in all ways, but in, by some way or another, I can ultimately handle this? Yes, because there are certain tools that you can use. I mean, even even Lee, the protagonist in Baghdad Solitaire, she's, she's learned a lot enough from her experience as a doctor in Afghanistan. She's learned enough to know that she needs to touch bases in Baghdad. She needs right. to find certain people. She goes to see uh, an Iraqi doctor who she's known. They've gone through um, uh, part of their medical training together in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. She knows to do that. She knows to ask questions. And um, and that is, you know, I, that's something that, that uh, that's what gets you through. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, in every difficult situation I've ever been in, uh, there was something new to learn. I, I mean, I'll give you an example. Being in Somalia at a very bad time, before U.S. forces had gone in, there was a raging famine. It was so bad that you would drive down the road in Somalia and just see tattered clothes and skulls and crossbones. You know, people were dying on the side of the road and you would come to these... Uh, uh, out in the boonies, some wonderful aid group would be sitting there stirring gruel for 3,000 oh children who looked like little birds. Uh, in that situation, traveling around in very dangerous circumstances, learning uh, that there were a lot of different clans, that you had to pick up someone from a certain clan in order to make it and survive a checkpoint, learning all of that, 
uh, every time you go into a situation, you learn things that you you have to learn while you're there. So it, it really helps to be a quick study. I don't know if you know when you'll next be in Baghdad yourself, but when you're there, what are you going what are you going to look for? What are you, what are your eyes going to be open for the next time you see Baghdad? I think um, going back to Baghdad, I would first go to old friends mm. to see what the situation is, to see how they are. The book Baghdad Solitaire is now in Baghdad. It's uh, oh really? Yeah, that I didn't know. It's being read at the moment by um, various people. Uh, Hoshai Zabari, who's the foreign minister, um, various people in government have a copy. So we'll see what they think of it. I'm sure they'll all be looking for themselves. (laughs) Those are the the readers. It's not necessarily the American readers you're worried about. It's the people who are in Baghdad right now reading it who you think that they can be the judge of the, they can be the judge of how I've captured this, right? Well, I have had something very gratifying happen, which is I got an email from a former Marine officer who was in Baghdad and in Afghanistan, but really was in Baghdad and really understood the place, I think. And he read the book. He wrote me and he said, I've read 90 pages. I had to put it down and I'm reading the rest in small chunks. Mm. And when he finished, he said, you nailed it. Mm. And it's that kind of person who I, I was, I was very, very happy about that. Mm. You nailed it. What, what higher praise can there be? Yeah, he said, you took me back there. Mm-hmm. You know, you captured what was going on. Now, of course, it's a big war. Mm-hmm. You could write a hundred different books about that war, and mm-hmm. it would capture different pieces of it. But to be able to, in this limited world of this political thriller, mm-hmm. to be able to capture that, to make him feel and smell and taste Iraq again, was very exciting. Mm-hmm. I've been speaking with reporter, documentarian, and now novelist, Leslie Coburn, author of the new political thriller, Baghdad Solitaire. Leslie, thanks so much. Thank you. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. Find more from me at colinmarshall.org and more from the LARV at LA, reviewofbooks.org. Thanks.